what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. David Aronovich is an award-winning journalist who's worked in radio, television and newspapers in the UK for 40 years. Once president of the National Union of Students and a communist, he now describes himself as a radical moderate. He's a columnist at the Times, but has written for many newspapers in the UK, winning numerous accolades, including the Orwell Prize for Political Journalism. His television work includes the BBC One documentary series The Blair Years, as well as regular appearances on BBC News 24 and Have I Got News For You. He's written three books, including Voodoo Histories, which debunks modern day conspiracy theories, and Party Animals, which touches on his upbringing. David Aronovich, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Uh, You're welcome, Andrew. Now, a lot of people's early beliefs obviously inform their whole lives, the values that they pick up in their immediate family when they're young or their immediate culture. You've written a book about the unusual uh, culture in which you grew up, party animals. Um, and so would you say that what you imbibed at that time has had a long-lasting effect on your beliefs and values and opinions? Oh, God, yes, uh, mm. without any doubt, uh, without, without any doubt about it. I mean, um, uh, the other day, one of the um, uh, leading Corbynistas said to me uh, on Twitter, as everybody does, um, <laughs> the reason why you are... Uh, critical in the way that you are of Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him is because you are so angry about your own background and in rebellion against it. And I thought it was interesting because this was more or less completely wrong. Uh, It is perfectly true that I haven't ended up being uh, a uh, Marxist-Leninist and believing that the Soviet Union... uh, represented a superior stage of human development. That is true. Um, But the ethical um, internationalist um, uh, aspects of my upbringing, I mean, what we're talking about here is a set of assumptions which you barely even, you start off barely even knowing that you have because you imbibe them uh, as a child. And they're not just what you're imbibing the now, you're also imbibing bits of your parents' past which leeches into the now, like the old books on the bookcase that predate you, like the mm. like the things that they've written, the people they know, the friends that they had, the discussions that they have around you, the places they go, what they say about the places they go with you. So all these things are happening. So my parents were members of the British Communist Party. My father was a full-time worker for the British Communist Party until I was 13. Um, And the critical factors about that were firstly the sense that there should be and must be a better society to be built, Um, that 
we had international responsibilities, that what happened in other countries and to other peoples was as present and meaningful as what happened in the street next to you. This was an incredibly important part of, of this. I'm not trying to idealise it. I'm just trying to say that, you know, the set of, if you like, kind of yeah. uh, almost quasi-ethical assumptions with which, you, with, with which you're brought up. The idea that... Um, uh, of responsibility and so on, which can be quite a burden, actually, uh, in many ways. And I've met people who were um, uh, party children, we called them, before, who felt a kind of rather big sense of failure because they could never really kind of quite uh, match up to their parents' desire for society. And then there's what uh, 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 Dickens embodies in the... Um, in the case of Mrs. Jellaby in uh, Bleak House, if you remember her, who is far mm -hmm. more worried about the poor uh, African children of Boribula Lar, I think the place is called. Yeah, on the Nile. Yeah, and on that, <laughs> than she is about in her own children. This is a kind of satirical counterpoint. Or the poor next door. Uh, or or conceive exactly. Or conceivably, the, the poor next door, yeah. and so. Uh, uh, but actually, so it was an incredible. It was an incredible kind of intellectual framework. I mean, can you imagine all these books there, all these people coming in and out, all these meetings being held? Uh, and it wasn't until much later that I real well, I realised at the time that it wasn't what my friends and other people were <laughs> experiencing, and so on. And of course, you know, like all children, you have a kind of conformist desire to be a bit more like them and a bit you know, a bit like, a bit less awkward. But mm. on the other hand, it gave me a kind of purchase and it gave us a sort of purchase on the world, which is pretty rare. Um, and I uh, and I can't but look upon that as a t fantastic advantage, um, you know, in almost everything that I've done. Not least, actually, in what about that, I've had both to question and to criticise and to regret. Because criticizing and regretting things in your own situation and things about yourself is a really essential part of, you know, growing up and developing. And I probably I haven't done it anything like enough and most of us most of us don't. But for for example, I'm I'm very uh, aware of things like confirmation bias and was before I even heard the term confirmation bias and so on. Mm. You know, I'm very well aware of the of the way in which we take up a position and then bend the world around us to make it conform with the thing that we already believe. So and all these things, I think, are kind of very, very helpful. Um, so I, so he, this, this critic of mine was completely 100% wrong. <laughs> um, it didn't come from that at all. What it came from, actually, was simply knowing how these beliefs were constructed and how people justified them and how people bent backwards in order to try and make their set of preordained uh, beliefs and faiths fit the world no matter what the reality actually was. And that was the thing. And is, that, you know, is that what your parents did? In your, in your experience, that the parents, your parents, and their fellow party members, that they well, they did stuff. That, yeah, yeah. Well, well, of course. I mean, that. I mean, well, classically, um, they would. Uh, I mean, it, it, it was changing by the time I was a teenager. But in the in the books around us, etc., there would be great, you know, masses of apologism for what had happened in the in the Soviet Union and what were called right. the socialist countries, in which by the time I was around, it had become a form of apologism which sort of suggested yes, there had been mistakes 
Um, <laughs> pa- you know, passive voice. There had been mistakes, but these were largely caused by the hostility of the outside world. And they were nothing, there was nothing, if you like, endemic to the belief system itself, which would give rise to these mistakes. It was just simply kind of unfortunate historical uh, circumstance. So there was a form of apologism. Now, of course, a bit earlier, that apologism had been much more aggressive and it would have taken the form of defending, let's say, the Moscow trials. Though my dad was only 18, I think, when the Moscow trials were, were happening, a member of the Young Communist League. But a bit later and just before I was born, the British Communist Party was defending the show trials in Eastern Europe. And I wrote about that a bit because that was much more proximate. It was much more recent. And it had forced them effectively into accusing people they themselves knew of things that if they thought about it for five seconds they knew they couldn't possibly be guilty of and signing up and selling pamphlets in which it was justified effectively that these people were then executed well that's a problem you know and you have to account for that uh, and and account for a whole series of of, of other other things along the way so you you were raised it's fair to say then as 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 part of a big story, I mean, your parents believed in a pretty big story, the the, the, the communist story of, of, of where we've, we've come from, of what we are, of where we're going, is a, is a big, you know, quite uh, dramatic narrative. Um, when did you start to depart from it? Well, consciously, consciously. I think they were also departing from bits of oh, it. Oh, I see. I mean, I think, but, you know, as you got through into the 60s, and I, you know, I was born in 1954, uh, as you got into the 60s, it became a more and more difficult story to tell yourself. Uh, and so on. Some people really did manage. Funny enough, some of the people around Jeremy Corbyn were some of those who tried to hang on to it the absolute latest with regard to the Soviet Union, which was one of those kind of, you know, substantial, substantial uh, ironies. Um, uh, but... But I want to take up the way in which you asked that question, because the parallel it draws, obviously, is with other, if you like, I'm not quite sure what you would call them, completist belief systems, mm. Mm. Um, of which obviously significantly religious belief systems are, um, are, 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 are a relative. So yes. when I say I recognise some of the, you know, um, styles and practices and belief structures of, say, the Roman Catholic Church, in the stories that communists told themselves about how the world was ordered, um, I think many Catholics would understand would understand what I'm saying. You know, it, uh, mm-hmm. the, the communist background I grew up in explained the world at almost every point. Marxism, Leninism explained the world. You know albeit kind of adopted more flexibly by then, explain the world at almost every point. The history of class struggle and class organisation explained almost everything from literature to art to science, everything. Uh, and so on, if you if you studied it in the, in the correct way. And of course, there were some areas where Marxism generally did genuinely did give terrific insight and contributed enormously to discussion. I mean, thinking particularly about history and historiography, Mm. where the best kind of sort of Marxist thinking uh, really did help the process of thinking about how the world had been organised and how it had developed. You didn't, as long as you weren't being um, dogmatic about it. Um, But nevertheless, the relationship to religion, and it was quite interesting as well, because some of the communists, older communists that I, I had met, were in fact formerly Catholics. It was yes, I mean, I was going to say there's been an easy and well-trod bridge between Catholicism and communism in the early 
20th century. I remember London's Conway Hall when I, you know, first started going there about 20 years ago, occasionally, you would meet people who were in their 80s or 90s who'd who'd come from Catholicism through communism to, you know, humanist organisations. And they they almost seemed to be a a destiny. You know, they, they were fated to travel in that direction from Catholicism to communism. They did. I mean, the desire, after all, to have an explanatory system imposed upon what otherwise seems like an impossible chaos and to have uh, a set of um, uh, superior values uh, in what is otherwise seems likely to become uh, um, a dog-eat-dog jungle is is very important mm. to a lot of people. I think actually it's probably important to us all in one sense or another. So humanists obviously lay claim to a series of values. It's just that they don't tend to suggest that somehow or other they have been received from either a deity or from some one great thinker or two or three great thinkers who have constructed entire systems for them. And it's interesting how Marxism-Leninism, or communism rather, developed into, um, in terms of the belief in the prophets and the prophets' infallibility, developed into something incredibly closely relational to a priesthood and a a papacy. Yes, yeah. And and I suppose the the other thing that a humanist view doesn't do is it doesn't say that we're going somewhere, that there's some sort of end destiny consummation where it'll all be, you know, achieved. Um, And I think think a lot of the former communists that I knew who were older then... um, were quite relieved to have, you know, <laughs> left that behind, that assumption behind, and instead they were much more empowered. I mean, did you find yourself, uh, or have you found yourself, trading one um, big narrative for another? Obviously, from the sound of it, not. No, 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 no. I mean, one of the things that I feel now is I don't need a big narrative. Hmm. Um, and, and and it's interesting you should use the word relief because actually that is a very good way, but I haven't thought about it before. I do feel a sense of relief. I don't have to have a big narrative that I can say that the world is very complex, that here is where um, I set, if you like, my kind of ethical stance and these are the reasons I think for it without having to appeal to some kind of, you know, much higher authority, any higher authority than, let's say, another thinker who has put this question rather better than I could have done. Yeah. Um, and that sort of and that sort of it. Now, for some people, that is to leave them uh, feeling desperately alone and, and vulnerable. Um, you know, I, and I do remember when I was younger. It was it was wonderful in some sense when I was a young party student, first a Communist Party student. It was amazing how you could just phone up and find out what the party line was on something. You know, because if you ever had a kind of doubt about something and you didn't really have time to kind of look at it too too quickly and so on. And actually, this is a kind of constant problem that we all have, which is what constitutes authority, because we can't decide everything for ourselves and we can't look at everything ourselves. And, you know, in the case of, say, the pandemic, which is a very, very good example, here are a set of life or death assertions and analyses which you can't possibly investigate for yourself. So you're going to have to make some decisions about who you regard and what you regard as more trustworthy. And that, and that is not a leap of faith exactly, but it's not a totally unrelated either. 
Well, it's trust, isn't it? I think you use the word trust. trust, and that's interesting because there is a difference between faith and trust. There's a difference between going to a source of authority and going to someone who you know has investigated this question in the way you would yourself if you were in their position, you know, in the method that you would use, but just happens to have done it <laughs> to a higher level, um, you know, with, with greater expertise. Sure, sure. As long as you're aware that that would have been the same thing that somebody intelligent might have said about their priest. Yeah, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. And that's, and that's, I suppose, in a sense, if you are a Catholic and you're inside the Catholic frame of looking at things, then a priest is an expert to you. Yeah. I mean, they, they definitely are. Um, but you, well, we're sliding into relativism there, and that's interesting because I think that from a lot of your published work, one of the things that you do value um, is the concept of truth. And this is yeah. under threat these days from many directions, um, either because people are deliberately lying or because some people are denying the existence even of some sort of truth. You've written about this in terms of uh, conspiracy theories, obviously, with voodoo histories, but you also write about it a lot um, as a as a, uh, a current contemporary problem, I guess, in society um, about truth. Is that fair to say? Have I detected that right? No, it's an obsession. It's an obsession. And I think <laughs> uh, it is an obsession. And I think actually it's a kind of child, it's childhood and psychologically uh, related. Uh, as a kid, I, because of my difficult relationship with my mother, I felt I was always in the position of never being able to establish with her what was actually true as apart from a series of things that she would assert and, uh, and so on for all kinds of various reasons. So the idea that you should try and get as close as you could reasonably to what was the true truest thing that you could discover about something um, has uh, always been something with me. I mean, you know, like everybody else, I've fallen away from that from time to time. I've, you know, from time to time, I've used easy uh, paths to my own arguments mm. and so on, which haven't really kind of quite fulfilled what I'm what I'm saying there. I've also been guilty of confirmation bias, um, you know, on a and I spot it in myself uh, constantly. Try to combat it and so on, but can't always successfully. A, every now and again, I even indulge it. Actually, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> um, you know, um, being a, a columnist for a national newspaper requires sort of using a, a variety of tools and, and, and strategies and so on, and being utterly and scrupulously balanced and fair in every one of your utterances is not one of the biggest. Uh, although people, <laughs> although people like to think, I think, uh, you know, about the writing of somebody like me that what they are getting is the nearest I I have to an honest view about the situation, whereas I obviously see writing all the time where I think that person doesn't care whether that's true or not really particularly. Yes, that's, that's very common. You know, that's that's their position. And, and it's part of, I mean, you know, I talked about this, um, uh, this person who accused me of uh, being down on the left because of, you know, kind of, you know, uh, I hadn't liked... Um, my what I was taught when I was a, a chance on, I was kind of reacting against it the way I was brought up, uh, and so on. But this particular person, I think, constantly says and writes what he wants people to believe mm. from his political view, rather than what he necessarily believes is true. And I, that to me is not very useful. 
And why do you care so much about truth? I mean, you've given an explanation, a sort of psychological explanation of why you care about it because of your early childhood experience and it being difficult to establish. Um, but I mean, why do you care about it now? Why, why do you value it? Why, sh- why should others value it? Because I mean, the fairly obvious thing is where, where are we without it? Where are we without the attempt to get to it? What do we become if we abandon the uh, quest for trying to find the truest thing that we can and simply settle you know, we become prey to every snake oil salesman, every person rattling into town, you know, with with something that tells you that this tincture or that tincture will solve every problem. We become prey to every quack, to every populist, to every dictator, to every, uh, and so on, you know. Mm. You, you get my drift here, but yep. it's kind of fairly, uh, a fair, fair. Why is it, for example, that um, uh, dictators and authoritarians rely as a major part of their um, support system on untruth mm, mm. or suppressing the truth. Why? This is, this is not some kind of, you know, strange um, uh, aesthetic which <laughs> they are somehow kind of brought up under, you know, I'm going to be a dictator and so on, and I think it's kind of rather neater if I don't tell the truth about this. This is kind of an essential part of that business uh, and so on. And I loathe authoritarianism and dictatorship and I also and this is really important actually uh, to me I absolutely hate what we call scapegoating I hate the human tendency to blame to Mm. find someone to blame I I react against it incredibly incredibly strong I mean even even in this context of football support so um, if you're a football supporter one of the things that you know is there will be a section of the crowd who always blame, pick on a particular player mm. and I find myself absolutely automatically driven to defend that player against <laughs> the act of being scapegoated. so it's even in that kind of context that I find it incredibly difficult partly I think it's because I could easily imagine that scapegoat being me but not mm. just that it's just that it it, it it is that it is damagingly and um, an inhumanely untrue. Right. So it's not true. It's not. It sounds like it's not true. Is also doing the work of sort of it's not fair there as well. Is that? Do you think truth and fairness and justice? Do justice and fairness just naturally follow from truth? Is that your gut feeling? Well, it's hard. And, to, and whereas it's hard to be fair without being true. I think. I mean, you know, uh-huh. obviously, obviously. Let's qualify this a bit. Um, if you have a, you could have a church, you could have a Church of England vicar or a Roman Catholic priest or a rabbi who firmly believes in the deity and who believes in uh, the word of whatever text it is that they use or series of texts they use, who is an utterly good and aesthetic uh, and um, uh, uh, good and uh, ethical person. And we've all met them. I mean, and one yes. of the problems that we, you know, that I have is that the line of, you know, if we want to use these terms, between good and bad people does not run down the line of religious and irreligious. It just doesn't. No. It, it is interesting to me, but of course it is true, that you can compartmentalise to the extent whereby you allow yourself to be godish with one part of your being and you allow yourself to be a significant... Uh, follower of what you be- hope to be true and so on uh, and, and try to make true on the other. Both things mm. can go co- coexist within within the same human And that's being. a widespread, that's a widespread 
phenomenon. And that's a widespread, a very widespread yeah, phenomenon. Yeah, so, yeah. so as a humanist, you will you will have discovered quite often that some of the nicest people you know are religious. <laughs> sure, maybe not the nicest, but definitely some of the nice people. <laughs> <laughs> some of the nice people. We'll yes, yes, that. yes. Of course, of course. No, definitely, definitely. And so, so there, so there isn't an, an automatic link between. Um, the, the quest for truth, as you or I might define it, and, you know, good morals and good ethics and fairness and justice. That's true. But I suppose what you're saying is <clears throat> that without truth, there's always the possibility of um, dictatorship, enslavement, totalitarianism. I'd say without it, there is the certainty of dictatorship, right. uh, totalitarianism, enslavement um, mm. and fraud. Yeah. 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 Some of the things that you said you'd retained from your... Uh, upbringing and the the values and beliefs of of your parents and maybe the values and beliefs of the uh, communist party they were part of were with was the idea that a better society could be achieved and that we have global responsibilities you know international responsibilities not just to those uh, close to us but but wider is that is is that accurate are there other things as well that you've retained of, of those sorts of values well I mean you know there are all kinds of big and little things or things which fit into a more complete picture and things which kind of stand uh, on their own. I mean, I was brought up into a background which was, uh, if you like to use the term, prematurely anti-racist. Um, mm. You know, that's, 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 that's just what we were. I mean, there were curious elements to that because my mother, who had been brought up in a very English background, middle-class background, and was always on the side of black people, also retained for many, many years in the way she spoke, a kind of fundamental belief that black people were somehow childish. And this was a pure legacy of empire and the way she was brought up and so on. She never quite, she was always on their side and there was always, so when we talk about these things, I think we've got to be aware that there are nuances that go, you know, firstly, there's the kind, you know, there's the kind of lynching racist, you know, the people, person who actively seeks to discriminate against other people on the basis of their skin color or whatever. And then there's that other, uh, there are all those other kinds of assumptions made about which you barely even know you're making, uh, which essentially can put uh, a person uh, in a box or seem to put somebody in a box and so on. And they're not exactly the same thing. And I don't think you can treat them like the same thing, but they both, but they, but, but they both uh, exist. Um, mm. well, so in regard, so there are sets of values, if you like, and kind of sets of assumptions about the world. Um, interdependence, for instance, comes is a very easy concept to somebody brought up as I was brought up. Although for some people, and I particularly noticed it during the Brexit debate, it is a nearly impossible concept. I mean, they just yeah. simply don't seem to be able to figure the idea that actually, you know, John Dunn, we are all part of each other. Um, mm -hmm. And this is more mm -hmm. true than it ever was before. Um, and that we had to get on with the business of organising life uh, as a result, um, I suppose in believing that you know, oh God, that there are better, we can be better than we are, we can do better than we are. Probably, most a lot of conservative politicians, as opposed to conservative supporters, would would think that. Actually, would say they they think that. Um, most people who are active in any way in politics, uh, outside of you know. Uh, nativist populism uh, mm. or would say that they would say that they think that in in, in one sense or other that we can do that we can do better um 
But there is a there is a fundamental difference, isn't there, in what you're saying between the people who think we can simply do better um, and the people who think that really everything we've done is our responsibility and that it is us actually that are building society and the systems that we live in. And even because people who think we can do better could nonetheless believe that to some extent things as they are are sort of ordained, that we can do better within within certain bounds. Whereas what you're saying seems pretty boundless. You know, you're saying, if, if I'm reading you properly, um, and it is obviously a very something that you have retained from from your uh, parents' beliefs and your upbringing, is that there is a sort of boundless possibility of, 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 of human beings creating systems and um, societies and, you know, being interdependent and so on, isn't it? Is that yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. If what you're saying is I am not as attracted as some people are by the idea of the limitations of something called human nature, um, that way, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's. I, I think that might be broad, might broadly be right. I mean, one of the observations that I increase, you, you know, how when evil people who call themselves evolutionary uh, psychologists will talk about, you know, the, <laughs> how we were formed on the high veld, you know, hunting animals, yeah, yeah. And, and it's all kind of natural. But what I actually, and of course, there are obviously forms of behaviour, etc., which are instinctive uh, and so on. Um, or, or, or I, I always remember his name, um, uh, Alastair Dunbar, I think, who had this kind of theory that human beings can't cope with more than 100 close uh, associated human beings, because that's... Robin Dunbar. Is Robin Dunbar, Dunbar is yeah, human, yeah. human nature. Yeah. But what I think I see is that the thing that is unique to human beings is an incredible plasticity. And actually, this plasticity represents one of the underlying truths about human beings, which is that we adapt to each other. Uh, and we do it with, and that's our great evolutionary trait. We do it incredibly subtly. So actually, I do think that there are all kinds of things that we can be that we haven't yet been, you yeah. know, and that we can develop yeah. that we haven't yet been. So when people say, well, it's natural that people are tribal and so on, um, I don't really think that's particularly true. I think mm. we can adapt uh, other forms of being, and I think we already have to a significant extent um uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't kind of you know limitations physical limitations uh, some mental limitations that that we have upon us um but this becomes important when you think about what people can be and how people can develop because the other thing i have really imbibed and partially this is maybe my father's doing because he was brought up in a completely poverty-stricken childhood in the East End, left school at 14 or 15, was all completely self-taught until he went to Oxford to do a doctorate of philosophy and economics at the age of 49. That was his mm. first qualification of any kind. I'm incredibly loath as a result of that to believe what other people say about people's limit, innate limitations. Yes, um, I resist that enormously, and the same, and, and and that has also guided me with a significant extent with regard to feminism and women's rights, mm. because over the years, you know, comments were fairly early on that they weren't brilliant, but they weren't bad either. Over the years, noticing and right the way down to, for example, how the twenty sixteen election was talked about with Hillary Clinton, etc. Oh yes, yes, the absolutely endemic misogyny, which unfortunately also affects a significant proportion at any one time of women in society, because why would it not? This dampening down of people's innate capacity um, and the thing they could be, and I'm very much, um, uh, you know, of, of the kind of philosophical bent that says that um, 
the uh, the objective, if we have one, should be to allow people to be best fulfil their capacities, uh, increase right. and fulfil their capacities. Um, this is this is a classic humanist aim, obviously, for individuals and for society. This is the idea that you know you can reach have the opportunity and the, and the support and the confidence as well to try and reach the limits um, that you can reach in this life. Yeah, you know, exactly. I think yeah. Exactly. And a good society is one that enables people to do that. That's the object of a good society. Perhaps we'll come on then to, to political values. You've mentioned politics a couple of times now, and I've avoided it because I wanted to talk about political values separately. So I've avoided... Um, responding or drawing out anything that you've said so far but obviously a lot of what you've said um is well everything you've said has a bearing on politics has a bearing on you know our, our shared life uh, and um the way we uh the decisions we make uh, politically so i'd like to um discuss a little bit your political values because i think that they're obviously a very important part of what you believe um what you write about and 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 what you're active on um I thought we might start with freedom of expression because, of course, um, uh, I think we first met actually when you were chair of Index on Censorship. Yeah. Um, with which the humanist organisations over the years have had um, a lot of connections and links. Um, and obviously, um, you write a lot about freedom of expression. So I think I'm on pretty safe ground assuming that freedom of expression, freedom of speech is something you believe in. No, it, it, it's true. And I mean, nothing is more contested ground than this at the moment. I mean, or very few things are more contested ground than this at the moment. Uh, and we are in a real state about it uh, currently, mm. um, uh, largely because of the advent of uh, social media uh, has driven a cart and horses through the arguments that we've been having previously. Um, uh Mm. it's difficult to know how to get into it isn't it on in the because in the current context is so complicated like you well, say and so well i mean let's, let's let's start with this one of the things that i have discovered um uh not news to many other people i'm sure but it was kind of something i hadn't really kind of quite realized when i got involved with index is just how ingenious people are in thinking up reasons why other people should be stopped from saying things what what limitations on freedom of expression would you except um, the classic ones, presumably. Well, yeah, the classic ones. I mean, um, as we all know, we all re revert to the calling out fire in the crowded cinema when there isn't a fire and so on. It's creating a kind of damaging, uh, a, a damaging panic. Um, there is no answer to this, as you know, absolute answer, except to say set the bar as high as you can. Um, mm -hmm. uh, because freedom of expression, expression is, if you like, the fundamental freedom which uh, underlies the possibility of your doing anything about anything um, and you're changing anything and you're discussing anything and you're debating anything mm. and it is extraordinary how people who want to limit freedom of expression far more than you do are quite happy to use the same terms and the same arguments as people who only want to limit it a bit um, uh, and and make it apply. You know, if you want to apply a damage test for it to, for, to to speech, well, no one is better at that than the Chinese Communist Party. 
sure. uh, they will find all kinds of reasons why it's incredibly damaging to have X, Y, and Z said, and why it's foreign actors and it's undermining, or you know, the kind of old fences in Latin America of slandering the president. Uh, uh, yes, so yeah. Um, and uh, so, as I've said, I mean, you want to try, it, but the big problem, the big problem we find uh, now, is that. The quest for authority, it's not so much that people say things that are wrong. They've always said things that are wrong. It is just that the um, uh, the cacophony is such that the quest to find, if you like, the truth and the authoritative voice is really difficult. And I do think that platform, whereas you might say a platform like uh, Facebook, like Twitter, like Google, etc., I'm antsy about them cutting down lots and lots of people on demand from saying the things they say, even where we find them intolerable. I am in favour of them making a statement in favour of what you can find that is demonstrably truer, if you see what I mean. In yes, other yes. words, some form of reasonable appeal to authority, which people can find and which people can make, which will um, which will help people... Uh, and enlighten people rather than, uh, you know, mean that they accompany these other slanderers, etc., into the outer darkness. But be aware that every now and again, the slanderer is right. (laughs) Sure, sure. And the apostate is right. And Mm. the critic who I loathe may have a point. Or, you know, next week, that critic is me, and I might want to put my point, and somebody might want to stop me. Yes. Yeah. I think that, I mean, they are the classic arguments for and against, aren't they? And, you know, I find them very compelling personally. Um, I think, however, a lot of people listening will probably struggle, you know. Um, and and it's probably because the sheer volume of expression now <laughs> is is so great. I mean, we were, you know, we're, we're talking about political principles, not to get too evolutionary psychology about it in a way. We're talking about political principles that were developed in the days where you could converse with your neighbours, your friends, strangers in the coffee shop, intellectual intimates, and read the mainstream press. Um, and, you know, some people could argue that the political principles that you've um, laid out, which are, you know, classic liberal positions on freedom of expression, um, ought maybe not to be replaced by other principles, but might stand in need of amendment in a situation where um, the volume of expression is so unmoderated, unmediated, immense. Yeah. And and an analogy, which probably you do agree with, I don't know, is with advertising, of course, is that we do one of the limitations on free expression that we allow in most um, liberal democracies anyway though we protect it with commissions and regulators and so on and standards is false advertising. You know, if I say this, this um, blessed oil will cure your AIDS, you know, um, I can, I can be, my, my adverts can be removed, you know, by a public authority that removes such, such adverts. So that is one, one analogy that might transfer over to things like Facebook and Twitter. I know you'd probably say it is, well, what would you say about that? Well, I think it's problematic because let's, yeah. let's, take, let's, let's take an example. If somebody says about me, David Aronovich, um, he's motivated, I think, significantly by his Jewish tribal loyalty. Um, 
which is completely untrue and so on. But should I want to prevent that person from being able to say it at all? Mm. Um, you could argue that if he takes it or she takes it much further, then it becomes an incitement to hatred and, uh, uh, and maybe it would. I mean, uh, to take the obvious, uh, another obvious example, I am not in favour of, of making Holocaust denial illegal. Right. Uh, and never have been. Um, I, I can understand why the Germans or the Austrians did it. Um, uh, and I, yeah. can't, I can't argue that the Germans haven't confronted their past because they certainly have uh, and so on. But I have a copy of Mein Kampf up on the, on the shelf, not because I'm a great follower of Hitler, but because I'm, you know, it's a kind of <laughs> student of history. I want to know what the bastards said. Sure. Um, that they found so mesmerizing uh, and convincing. And I can't really easily do that unless I read it. You can't do it if you read it, though, <laughs> in a way as well. Well, you also need to know what, what's mesmerizing about Mein Kampf. <laughs> well, actually, it's incredibly boring. That's the truth. Exactly. <laughs> vaguely incoherent. I mean, you know, I don't want to. Well, you wouldn't know that if you hadn't read it. No, you, you wouldn't know it. And you wouldn't know what it's. I mean, I always remember. Um, uh, when David Edgar made a play out of Gitter Sereny's book about Albert Speer. Um, and he has this brilliant scene where the dead Hitler comes on stage, played by Roger Allen rather kind of splendidly, with rather more kind of presence, I think, even than Hitler had, um, and says, why did you not believe me when I said what I wanted to do? It was all there. It was all there in what I wrote and in the books. You can't turn around then and say, oh, he was more belligerent than we expected or he was more kind of anti-Semitic than we <laughs> expected or he was, you know, I wrote it all down. What's wrong with you people? Well, exactly. You have to read it to know. And that's presumably um, brings us to some extent full circle. So that one of the, the, re the reason for your commitment to free expression is that it is the way you find out truth, what's going on reality and it's indispensable presumably in your view as a result no absolutely but argument is absolutely essential and therefore the, the conditions under which you have argument and you have debate and attempting to have good faith in that argument debate which is you know constantly a thing we fall back from I mean, if everybody talks about kind of twitter debates and you do look at it and you think what is the point of you sending me that <laughs> you know that kind of rude toy etc trying to make your point your kind of arsey point and you know um <laughs> Who, who do you think you're convincing by this? What's the point? What, why, why don't we engage in a bit of dialogue? And then, before you know where you are, you've fallen down exactly the same rubbish hole and you've sent somebody a kind of really kind of, you know, uh, arsey tweet yourself, which is designed to make you feel slightly better and cleverer, etc. but doesn't... Uh, well, we're human after all, and that's what we do. <laughs> so maybe we shouldn't regret it too much, as long as we get the balance, try and get the balance right. So forming... I mean... There are all kinds of reasons to be optimistic as well. I mean, of which you could argue, say, this podcast is only one example uh, of, of, of millions. There are also hundreds of these happening. Mm. And people are interested and taking part and, and, and debating ideas properly and so on. So I think maybe sometimes, I mean, as we kind of draw this to uh, to a close, I imagine mm. listening to your the way you were phrasing things, um, but there are also reasons to be relatively optimistic about our ability to learn from each other and to communicate in, in addition to everything else. Um, uh, obviously, we have to deal with some 
fairly substantial problems along the way, such as climate change, etc., to make sure that we do have a survivable future. But if we can manage it, that you know, we can we can take the better parts of ourselves and encourage the better part of ourselves and lead a relatively kind of good and tolerable future. A better society can be achieved, interdependence, human responsibility, truth, freedom of expression, argument and dialogue, and there, a note of optimism. David Aronovich, thank you for telling us what you believe. Thank you, Andrew. That was David Aronovich telling us about his life and his outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the 10th and final episode of the second season. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about humanism, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining as a supporter or a member. You can also, to find out more about humanism, purchase the Sunday Times bestselling The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good bookshops. Mm-hmm.